Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is session number 64. And today we are going, I am joined as always by my colleague, Maggie Park. Um, Hello. And uh, who is back over in the UK now. Yeah, we landed this morning and I just said to Corey, thank goodness I set an alarm for Other Minds and Hands because <laughs> I just woke myself up. Yes, still a little discombobulated over there. So, but... Yeah. Yeah, so today we're going to return to Alice in Wonderland. This is a <coughs> so, sorry, sort of an extra session that we hadn't been planning. We were doing openings, right? So we were looking at the openings of Alice last time. But I found myself um, just like overwhelmed with thoughts about the the 2010 Tim Burton adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, and I and so I wanted to stop because this is a I think it's a really good opportunity to discuss in detail because this one just it just jumped out at me the way in which both the ways in which it is and is not connected to the text it just seemed a really really complicated and interesting example for thinking about how an adaptation which is clearly a modulation adaptation not a retelling right not it's not just trying to retell the story it's doing it's deliberately doing something different um and to think about what the relationship there and and again the thing that strikes me as a separate i mean we we've we've looked at modulation adaptations before i'm thinking in particular of spirited for instance which is a very you know or scrooged right mm -hmm. um both of which are you know deliberate modulations of you know the christmas carol um and not merely a retelling um but this one struck me as particularly interesting because of the way that it is, it involves the original narrative in the story as well. So it's not just a, so Scrooged, which we discussed before, strikes me, Maggie, is more like one of those like Shakespeare adaptations, which, you know, sets it in like a World War II camp or something like that, right? right? right. You know, while still basically, you know, not changing the lines or only changing them somewhat or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I mean, obviously there, there, there are certain differences that go beyond mere change of setting to Scrooged, right. From the original. And we, we looked at some of those when we looked at that film oh, over a year ago now, but, um, but this is a, this is a different kind of thing than that, right. It's not just, we're going to take the story and we're going to retell the story in a new way because putting it in a new setting and a new, and a new context, right. That's like a, a kind of a gentle version of modulation where it's still kind of a retelling without trying to be a strict or faithful retelling uh, mm -hmm. of the original, just like to, to, just to, to redo the book. This is a different kind of thing, right? Yeah, this feels like if a Disney movie started up with the phrase inspired by true events. Right. You know, it right. kind of feels like that. Like there's a shred of something very familiar in here, but yeah. we are going to be a little bit and this one, I ended up falling down a bit of a rabbit hole, uh, pardon pun, um, looking at production practices, uh, just because it is so different and how did it come about? And it spurned such a, an interesting um, franchise afterwards. Also, it made a billion dollars. This like movie made a billion dollars? Billion dollars. It's the Whoa. fifth highest grossing film. I forget of, of what the, the bracket there was, but it it's massive, you know. That's I had no idea this film did that well. Like one point oh two six billion, Whoa. so just over, yeah. Holy cow! And, 
Right. So, I mean, Sorry, yeah, we're talking about the 2010 adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, Tim Bur- the Tim Burton, Burton with, with starring Johnny Depp as the uh, as the Mad Hatter. Um, and, and, and a huge cast, actually. Well, it's like, incredible. Yeah. Playing the game of like, is that Stephen Fry? Is that, you know? Yeah. Like, and, then, and then all of a sudden, the Jabberwocky, the Jabberwocky yeah. speaks... Ninety percent of the way through the film delivers three lines, and you're like, "Holy cow, that's Christopher Lee!" <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting to just like read the path too, because um, the screenwriter just had a really interesting idea. She was said she was in a very dark place, and came up with this kind of idea about Alice being a bit more grown up and in a very dark place of her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and pitched it to Disney and they said yes with Tim Burton being like the only one that they would put at the helm for it and it was the first time he had ever used green screen 90% of the film was green screen like there was just so many really interesting things about like how this all came together and I think because of the 90% green screen and Tim Burton and Johnny Depp like you can see what the draw would be there in terms of like audience appeal mm-hmm there hadn't been things like this. Like there'd been avatar and stuff, but not this world, like not this vision. But in an interview, Tim Burton also said, I don't see this as an adaptation. I don't even see this as a Mm reimagining. And you're like, then what do you see this? Because it's it's definitely a reimagining. I mean, it's, it it keeps linking itself back to the original in some ways, though. Also, I mean, at the same time I can see. So, Okay, I have a theory about that. My theory is that when he says he doesn't see this as an adaptation, what he means is I don't. He doesn't see it as a retelling. Yeah, I think he he was taking away the connotation that there was a negativity and originality, right? Like, right. He was trying to make it clear that yeah, he's trying to detach it from like don't expect to see the book, right? If you know the book and love the book, you're not going to get that from especially because it's a Disney thing, right? right? You're looking for the Disney cartoon, the same it. Right, but wove in enough of that that it is familiar. But they also owned up to the yes, we are combining, you know, the Alice of a child with the Alice of the grown up through yeah. the Looking Glass and a few other things. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to hear. And by the way, that, that's such a really fascinating example of. This happens all the time. I mean, I encounter this all the time with authors who are unfortunately modern enough to, like, have interviews out there and stuff. And people that, like, um, this is why I I always enjoy reading the work of dead (laughs) authors because they're so much better behaved. Um, uh, You don't have to cope with all the things that they say about the book and stuff afterwards. But um, anyway, uh, a lot of times... People, it's like it's like with Tolkien. It's like people reading his letters, right? Like you can't just take what he says in his letters as if it's some kind of like objective thing, right? He is speaking to a particular person on a particular occasion and usually for a particular reason, right? So right. like, what you always have to ask yourself, like, what is the occasion of this letter? What is his rhetorical goal in this letter? Right. That's not to say that it's being disingenuous, but like you're gonna emphasize some things and you're gonna say things in a particular way because you're trying to convey this or you know, you're trying to deflect that or you're responding to this other thing and everything. So like with that kind of thing, um, Back to Tim Burton, then saying that he doesn't see it as an adaptation. Again, what we see there is expectation management by yes. him, right? In yeah. the context of that interview, um, and like authorial 
creativity, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the, the wanting to kind of own that space. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So don't, um, you are going to see something that is quite different from Alice in Wonderland and don't get upset is one of the subtexts, right. Of him, of, of him saying that. Um, but so, okay. So let's talk about, I was, so I was confessing last week that I found myself struggling, struggling against knee-jerk responses. And the thing that I kept wanting to say is they're completely missing the point of Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland. Right. That it's it's one thing to make changes. It's one thing to... But like, when you come back to thinking about the core of the original, right? Are they, are they capturing the core of the original in some way? And um, the thing that I was... Just continually bombarded with in that film is that they've taken the story. So many of the individual elements are familiar, right? Like um, the yeah, the characters, right? Uh, a lot of the references, even a lot of the kind of peripheral stuff. Like, not only main characters like the the, the, the Mad Hatter and um, the White Rabbit uh, and uh, who gets a name. He doesn't get a name in the book, but anyway, like, he's there. Um, you know, the blue caterpillar, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, right? So there's all the... and the, But but even, like, more peripheral stuff, like the flowers that talk and um, the rocking horse fly and the dragon fly looking glass insects from... from, uh, from Adventures in the Looking Glass. So, like, uh, you know, all there are lots of attention to detail in those kinds of ways, all of these little things. Um, and yet, they're all, all of the elements, all of these characters, all of these details are being put together to tell a radically different kind of story than the book tells, right? Um, the question that, you know... It came up when we were talking about this a little bit last week about the antagonist. Like, who's the antagonist of this story? What is the what is the shape? You know, Alice in Wonderland does not have a beginning, a middle and an end. Like, it doesn't. I mean, it's it is not that kind of story. Um, It's totally episodic. And it's just um, even Alice herself doesn't exactly progress in any, I mean, she experiences many things, um, and to some extent, her actions change in re- because, like, I, that it. But that's only in the sense of she becomes less surprised when certain. Yeah. She's less confused because she becomes accustomed to the same strange things happening. As, for instance, in Through the Looking Glass, one of the recurring jokes is a joke about causality. Right, so causality works backwards in Looking Glass world. So when she's trying to cut the plum cake in order to hand it around, um, she can't manage it. She's trying to cut the cake and it won't cut. It won't stay cut. She's like, I can't manage this plum cake at all. And they're like, oh, you have to pass it around first and then cut it afterwards. Um, and she doesn't understand how this is supposed to work, but when she tries it, she finds that that works just fine, mm-hmm. right? Um, anyway, so like that kind of 
weirdness, right, of like yeah. just the different rules by which the thing works really confuses her at the beginning and she becomes a little bit more inured to it later on uh, because she's a, but like that's not exactly character development, <laughs> right? That's, right? Yeah, I was going to say like if, if you had just pitched this to me without any knowledge of the script, I would see that as a huge flaw and really difficult as a storyteller. Like, I want the character arcs and the progression as a producer or whatever, you know? Like, I'd be looking for those kind of movement, movements and moments. So is it a strength of the text to be that flexible coming into an adaptation? Or is it a sign that the text isn't necessarily strong enough and you have to make that up? Well, that's kind of what Tim Burton was saying. Like, I was not engaged with Alice in Wonderland. There was no emotional core to, like, bring me into the story. I had to build one, which makes sense with what he created, but... Yeah, I mean, it's and certainly what it lacks is um, what I think in film they would call drama tension, right? Like there's there's tension in the tension of Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass is all about that is all about the confusion, right? Like I am encountering something which is radically different from or which operates by radically different rules um, from the way the normal world works and I am not understanding and then I am like slowly coming to wrap my mind around this alien thing, right? Like that's the tension. Um, And we get it again and again, episodically, right? Another time, another another thing. And there's there's so many different things at once that Lewis Carroll's playing with. Like, for instance, again, through the looking glass, for instance, he'll be simultaneously making jokes about chess and math and nursery rhymes and poetic language um, and something abstract like causality, right? Right. Like, all at the, like, they're all there. They're all kind of layered in there. And, um, and again, it's, each episode is sort of fun in its own way because of the way that it like challenges us to like stop taking things for granted. Like that's the, you know, it's one of the great effects of Alice in Wonderland is that it's constantly calling into our, our attention to things that we take for granted most of the time. Things like cause and effect, right? That Mm -hmm. you, of course you, um, if you're going to be put on trial for having done a thing, you have to do the crime, commit the crime first, right? Um, right? It's crime first and trial second and punishment third. And then, of course, when you find that being done in reverse, punishment first, trial second, and the crime last of all, um, you have to wrap your mind around that. And it causes you to think about this stuff. But again, as far as, like, again, character development, drama, tension. Um, so the fact that, you know, I was... Because I'm coming at the, when I'm watching the film, right? One of the things that I was that I was really made aware of is how the genre affects my expectations, right? I'm watching a feature film. I know I'm watching yeah. a feature film, and so when I feel the story starting to go in these particular directions, I wasn't surprised. Not because it had anything to do with Alice in Wonderland, but because mm-hmm. it's a feature film. So right, so it's like, oh, there's an antagonist. Okay, right, we've got an antagonist right. who's going to have to be overcome in some way, right? Um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you're talking audience expectation, and I was even messaging you earlier, being like, oh my God, I forgot how quickly things happen in this. And I was 26 minutes in, 
and had met everybody, mm-hmm. you know, and like all the drama was already happening. I'm like, hmm, instigating action. Here we are in you know, the middle of, of act one. Yes. And that's exactly what it was. It's, it's that expectation of a feature film that's giving that structure and it delivers on those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is, ex- well, it's was fair to say. I, I, I was going to say it's exactly opposite. Anyway, very different from the book, where each episode yeah. is contained, right? So you have the Cheshire Cat episode, and you have the 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 blue caterpillar smoking a hookah episode, and you have the Mad Tea Party episode, and and each time, in fact, it's it gets further dramatized in Through the Looking Glass. Through th- th- Through the Looking Glass is even more radically contained. In fact. Lewis Carroll, since it's the second book, right? Lewis Carroll is building on the expectations that he established in Alice in Wonderland and actually starts playing with that convention, his own, the convention of his own story, right? Because yeah. in Alice in Wonderland, it's like a chessboard, right? And so there's a big field and there are streams, a grid of streams, of, of small streams um, that break up the squares. And so each episode is literally in a square, like she's proceeding across the chessboard like a pawn, right? Yeah. And so it's like the moment when she crosses the the stream, like she you know, hops across the brook into the next square, everything will change, right? And she'll be, and it's like a, a reset in a completely new episode, and there's almost no carryover from one square to the next, right? So again, he right. he took like the way that the original book actually did work and he's now made it into like a, a system into like a rule. A flow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah but, but of course, as you say, that's the idea of having like the Dormouse and the Mad Hat. No, the Mad Hatter wasn't there. The Dormouse and the white rabbit and the, uh, and the blue caterpillar and the Cheshire cat, you know, like all in one spot interacting with each other and Alice, obviously. And then the Bandersnatch comes in. Who is alluded to, but never seen, of course, not a character actually, um, comes in. You know, it's that's completely different, as you say, total, totally different approach to storytelling, which is very feature film, and and could still totally work. I mean, when you started describing it that way, I immediately went Wes Anderson. I mean, everything he does is this episodic chapter by chapter, so you could see how Alice could work as a Wes Anderson film, which. I love those like cliche trends of, of a film by Wes Anderson. Like you could you could see this makes sense in that respect. But Tim Burton, that's not his style. He's so narrative. He's so mm-hmm. character driven, especially when you're talking about Helena Bottom Carter and Johnny Depp and you know these actors that really take on the roles and mm-hmm. want to develop that. And um, Anne Hathaway said that she was originally up for the role of Alice and said no, I really want to do the White Queen. So that character became. Not bigger, because I think it was already in the script, but it did become more prominent than yeah. they had originally anticipated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're inviting that kind of arc and development into it. Yeah, the whole, like, you know, historical tragedy, like the tragedy of the downfall of the White Queen and the usurpation mm-hmm. by the by the Red Queen, who is also the Queen of Hearts, you know, the conflation of the two. Even, honestly, the... One of the things that announces relatively early in the Wonderland plot that we're in a completely different place, right, is when the Red Queen, who is also clearly the Queen of Hearts, um, orders an execution, and it's a big deal. Like, the joke about the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland is that she's constantly saying off with their heads and no one is actually executed, 
right? right. Like it's not a serious thing. Um, whereas like with the, you know, the frog who stole the tarts and she orders his execution and then immediately contemplates eating his children on toast afterwards. I'm like, all right, this, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the same. So that's how we're playing this game. Yeah. And it's, I it's like that too, yeah. because you're, you are going to come to the table with a certain expectation as well to a feature film, Tim Burton, that cast such a different look. It's kind of a nice way to like make people turn it on their heads. Like, mm-hmm. no, don't imagine what you think, you know, and they're yes. targeting a different audience. I mean, it's very PG-13. It's not G. Yes. 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 Yeah, and there's more than one occasion on which similar kind of elements, which are purely comedic elements in the original, become part of a more um, uh, almost uh, horror elements. Uh, I'm thinking here of the Flamingo um, Club and the yeah. hedgehog ball. And the hedgehog balls. Right. Yeah. This is all, it's just a game that you play with flamingos. I mean, like everyone, including the flamingos and the hedgehogs, are all in on the humor um, of it and, and all participating in the humor of it. Like, they're part of the game. They seem to enjoy the game. Um, but the way in which, like, the, what is it, the flamingo who apologizes to the hedgehog as he's about to, like, you know, be yeah. made an instrument of the the torture of the hedgehog, right? It's, I mean, it's 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 the the whole atmosphere of it is just re, just again yeah. remarkably um, different. Um, so, okay, so he's like changing all that. Now again, that by itself. So all of these changes, um, the changes of like comedy to horror, though still not without comedy at all. I mean, the Red Queen is still, I thought, a really um, a really interesting example where she's... I don't know, I felt really torn. Like, on the one hand, she is described as a legitimate tyrant, right? And we see her doing things like, you know, hold, like, not only executing the frog and threatening to eat his children, but... Um, uh, but you know, holding captive the wife and puppies the of the dog, right? Yeah. And um, malicious, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, I mean, so she does legitimately horrible things, um, and yet I felt like we're supposed to laugh at her, also, like well, she was an object of ridicule. Yeah, and the way they walked that line, I'm I haven't yet decided if it was well walked or not because mm-hmm. I also went back and watched a bunch of the trailers and the stuff that they showed in the trailers is all the comedic hits. You know, the bring me a pig. I like a worm pig to rest my feet on yes. and lines like that that do make you giggle a little bit or you know focusing in on the grotesque large features that her posse kind of cover yes. themselves in, in order to fit in. Like it, it didn't quite land, whereas in the in the trailers, they're trying to make it look really humorous. In the film, it just looks a little bit sad, and it looks a little bit stretched, and it didn't quite fit the tone that I think they're trying to get. Because kind of what you were saying before, like, there's so many different ways that you can show tone. That croquet example is brilliant of, like, if that was in a script, you'd read that as a game. But mm-hmm. as soon as you put the hedgehog in shackles and you have the croquet apologizing that tone is done immediately like what a great technique to just change the feel of that thing and i don't 
that was they quite clarified what her tone was. We are ridiculing her. We are laughing at her, but not in a, oh, she's so funny, in a, oh, dear God. This yes, it was awful. uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And I again, I felt like it was supposed to be uncomfortable, but it was, yeah. Um, it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit odd. Um, mm. But um, anyway, I am, um, so where I felt myself sort of, wanting to object was not at, like the mere fact of changes or even like I was I was prepared to submit to the reality that movies almost never just proceed episodically with no arc right, right. I mean it's like that almost never happens this is why for instance um, I was I went into the Voyage of the Dawn Treader Narnia film not like base fully expecting some kind of radical change to the plot because of course famously within the Narnia context that is the book that is most episodic and least has le- least least of an arc and there's like not even a whiff of an antagonist um at any, I mean, like little individual incidents can have Moments, antagonists, right. but, um, but I remember talking with people before that film came out and trying to guess, like, okay, gonna they're gonna have to fabricate an antagonist. Who's it gonna be? And my money was on, um, was on the the magician um, uh, from the island of the duffel puds. Um, uh-huh. I thought that he would be turned into that. When I was close, it was it, it, it went near that. I did not guess the Dark Island itself, which was pretty much the antagonist that they... Uh, Wasn't that they, his uncle... It's been a long time since I've watched that. Wasn't it also his uncle that was, like, trying to usurp the throne, or was that during Prince Caspian? That's that, that that's, that's Prince Caspian. Okay, yeah, okay. That's Prince Caspian, yeah. Okay, See, and again, wish. there, King Miraz... You've got an antagonist, right? You've got the witch. Right. You've got King Miraz. You've got. Um, I get most of the Narnia books have a clear a, and yeah. Danger. I mean, <laughs> but the one anyway. So the Dawn Treader. I knew. So I mean. So even there, like I'm accustomed to the fact that that's how feature films work, right? That that's the right. kind of storytelling that they tend to do in feature films. The right. rising and falling arc. Uh, you know, ten, you know, an antagonist, if not a person who is an antagonist, something that has to be overcome, you know, over the course of the film and whatever. Um, so, so again, the mere fact that that happened, that the the Red Queen and the Queen of Hearts were elided into one character and made into the antagonist, didn't like shock or surprise me. But the effect of it. Right. Yeah. The effect of it was I just I kept being struck on first viewing at what a radical impact that choice has on what this story is. I was the moment where it really where I was just kind of blown away by the profundity of that impact was when she's walking with the Mad Hatter um, and they get to the place where the. Jabberwocky, just where the usurpation happened, right in the ruins of the old town or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does the flashback thing and remembers the day when the Jabberwocky attacked and and everything. And I was just like, holy cow, this is yeah, like the 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 depth that the character of the Mad Hatter is being given. Um, you know, which is totally out of nowhere. I mean, 
um, and, as far, for, as, far as the book is concerned. That, and don't you wonder if that's because Johnny Depp? You know. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, right. It's it's. We don't um, need that depth of character with the Hatter. You could find that same kind of tension through other characters, but I do wonder if it's because he was cast in that role. Yeah. 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 No. Exactly. I mean, so I um. Though I, I remember vaguely when, so 2010, when this was coming out before it had been released, I remember hearing the news that there's going to be a Tim Burton adaptation of Alice in Wonderland starring Johnny Depp. Like that was the thing I was told. And I remember sitting there saying, starring Johnny Depp. Like, who who, who, who are they casting as Johnny Depp? I couldn't even think of it. And I was surprised. They're like the Mad Hatter. And I'm like, okay. I mean, on the one hand, it's not more surprising than almost any other character would have been. But but I was like, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I wouldn't have seen that. I I wouldn't have thought that there was a Johnny Deppable character in the story. You know? Well, I could totally see Johnny Depp being that character, but not being a top billing. Like, it would be like a really cool cameo. Cameo, yeah. Bit, but yeah. To give him, yeah, that right, like like having Alan Rickman as the as the caterpillar, for instance. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Or any of the other. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they basically created the depth of character, which is absolutely their right to do. It's just you also kind of have to be aware of what you're asking from the audience. You're calling it Alice in Wonderland. It's done through Disney. Like there's the flashbacks have the girl in the blue dress with the white pinafore. The Cheshire Cat smile looks the same as what we're expecting. So there is this kind of like alignment with pre-expectation. Right. But then there's this complete turning on the head of other stuff that I don't think is wrong, but it does ask a certain something of their audience to be able to be like, okay, open to this storyline. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So that was the moment where I started basically kind of, I don't know, (laughs) questioning things, right? And saying, okay. Um, like obviously, I was ready for free and loose adaptation and, and whatever, and even even the the frame that will come back to the modern frame and the nineteen year old Alice because that's a really important element, of course. Um, but just simply saying, okay, this is now a story which does indeed have nothing to do with the story of Alice in Wonderland, apart from the fact that it is recycling the characters in part at least because it's not like you could say that the Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter is the Mad Hatter from the story right it's no I mean he has that name mm-hmm. um and but there's very little that Johnny Depp's character has in common with the Mad Hatter of the book um um and uh, anyway, point is, I'm like, all right, so the question I found myself asking was, why would you do this? Like, if this is the kind of story you want to tell, you know, if you want to tell a story of like a fantasy kingdom that has been fallen under the oppression of a horrible usurper um, and you're going to like overdo th- it, you know, some kind of coup to overthrow the evil dictator and restore the throne to the his sister. Like, like, 
even the tone of how you're describing it, we're like, well-worn territory. Well-worn we territory. Know? I'm like, I, I can, it's not like I can't see why you would tell that story. That story works, right? right? Yeah. I'm like, but why would you put, why would you dress that up in Alice of Wonderland clothing? Was yeah. the question I found myself asking. Like, why even bother? Why, 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 if that's, I mean, because that, that, that story has no connection at all to anything that's going on in the book. So why, why do it? Why, why, why keep the connection? Just cut the cord and be like, <laughs> this is a totally separate fantasy world. And the character, you know, you can still take the Mad Hatter thing, but make him, I don't know, you don't even have to make him a Hatter, whatever. But like, you see what I mean? Like, why, why do, what do you gain? From titling do, and, it Alice know, in Wonderland and, and doing yeah, that. I do. And we've talked about it a, a bunch with others that were, you know, the first version of Twilight that was called Twilight, but had Belle as a track star. And right, right, and, right, right, right. Yes. And we're on the run from the FBI. Like, why use that title if you're going to mess it up so much? Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the only thing I could think of with this one is just how apt it is for remediation and retelling and reimagining. Like, because it is such a beautifully drawn out world that does pull into these expectations and emotional things and, and all these different things that are just really difficult for text to be capable of doing, it has inspired so much reinterpretation and i think i mentioned it last time like the number of escape rooms and restaurants and you know themed things that are all alice in wonderland it just really lends itself to that then you also bring in tim burton and like the visuals just make sense that you can see that this world would just be really attractive and that's what i was reading from the screenwriter she's like it's just an idea that i had been mulling over for six or seven years so she was just kind of spinning it around in her head and thinking about different ways that she could enter that world so I, I don't have an answer, but like right. I don't always think it's purposeful. I sometimes think that some worlds just invite fan fiction way more easily than others. Right. And that's a really beautiful way to use fan fiction is look at the rich world that you have to gather content from. But if you're going to do that, you have to know that there's a pre-existing conception of what that's going to be like. So just how do you manage that? And this right. one's just a little left field. Right. Because so, there are some ways, I mean, I, I do agree... Uh, I mean, I'm not a I I, I, I I don't know Tim Burton's work that well. Like I'm not a like a devotee of Tim Burton, but um, but it all looks like this, right? Right. The, but the connection between Tim Burton and Lewis Carroll, like I can see that. I can see why somebody would be like, "Hey, that would be fun," right? Mm-hmm. And not only that, Johnny Depp. Right. I can absolutely see like, hey, we're going to do a, a kind of a wacky off the wall Alice in Wonderland thing. Whom would we want as a you know male? We, oh, let's get Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp would be great in Lewis Carroll. Right. I can totally see like that. Seventh, and it was like the seventh project they'd worked on together. It was like the fifth that Helen Bottom Carter worked on with him before. Yeah. So like clearly he has his cohort. Yeah, sure. Sure. Exactly. And that's um, anyway. So like I said there's some ways in which that makes a lot of sense. Oh my goodness, we have that same crab. Okay, can we t- can we digress for a moment? Yeah. We bought this crab for like $17 <laughs> because it was called a nine level can't be destroyed. <laughs> Six minutes in, the claw was off. <laughs> Six minutes. Yeah. We timed it. He's, I mean, he's still working at it, but six minutes, the claws were gone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> anyhow, so um, I the so as I said, in some ways, it is kind of logical, right? And I can see the attraction if 
if the if the thought is we want to tell this kind of story, right? And if our choice is between do we do all of our whole own world building, right? Make up a whole new world, a whole new thing, right? On the one hand, or do we give it a familiar skin, right? Mm -hmm. Drawing mm -hmm. from an existing and why not? Because they'll draw in, you know, right. pre-existing well, audience. Yeah, as that would long be as you intrigued. don't totally piss them off when you do that. Yes, yes. Yeah. There could be downsides to that, of course. But... but I also don't think this text is well known enough. The whole world knows this text, but most of them haven't probably actually read it, right? Yes, like, that is it's very not true. The kind of, it's not the kind of text that demands faithfulness and fidelity and right. all those different words. Right, right. Because even, again, because of the nature of the text, People aren't commit. No one's committed to the character of Alice. She's kind of a cipher. I mean, not exactly hundred percent, mm -hmm. but she's a bit. I mean, she's the point of view character who is. She's the one person who's supposed to be sort of normal in the weird world, and so right. she's not like a striking character. Um, uh, I mean, we talked about that last time. The way in which she's kind of works almost like Bella in Twilight as being, yeah. the, you know, the cipher that you can project yourself into, but. Um, uh, and anyway, so she, she's she, she's kind of like that. Um, so again, no one's gonna be like, oh, you've like eviscerated the heart of Alice, you know, the right. character, or like you've wrecked the plot. No one's committed to the plot. No one's committed to the, what they're committed to. What they want to see is like the stuff, right? World, With, yeah. That, to see the stuff floating through, which it does. Yeah. So you know, okay, all right, that's that's yeah. And and the stuff has incredible talent behind it, and really cool new special ways to film things, right. and. You right. know, familiar music, familiar visuals, and big brand Disney branding marketing. Like, right. I get it. Right. Yeah. But, okay, so here's the thing. The thing that I found coolest about this film, had it just done that, had it just been like, we're going to tell a, you know, fantasy liberation from the Dark Lord story, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is going to be... You know, a lot like, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz and a bunch of other things. Right. Anyway, we're just going to do this, but we're going to do it in a Lewis Carroll with with a Lewis Carroll skin. Right. That that would have been OK. What to me makes this film really, really interesting. And I do find it really, really interesting. I'm still not saying I necessarily love it. It's, it's not become my favorite movie or something. Um, yeah. And again, little side note here. Um this is one of the things that I have the hardest time I find talking in public about this like doing this kind of analysis in public is that people tend to like when I get really enthusiastic about the things that they're doing with the thing, people seem to mistake that as like me loving the film and endorsing it. Right. right. And neither is going on like this is yeah. not my favorite film i am not endorsing it but there's lots that's really interesting about it but we and, like to try to understand things and discuss it exactly yeah. anyway exactly. so just just a little side note there but anyway the point is the the element that i found really interesting is that again they could have just done that they could have just done standard fantasy you know story plot line with lewis carroll skin but instead right. They chose to superimpose on top of that a separate story which is continuously rooted in the original. Like the question mm -hmm. of, are you the right Alice? 
Yeah. Right. And they have the actual flashbacks. And yes. She yes. thinks it's a dream the whole way, but then, oh no, it's a memory. Like they really work that through. Yes. The, the, the fact that I was sitting there on first viewing saying like, is this Alice in Wonderland? <laughs> what does this have to do with Alice in Wonderland? Um, but then, like, when they keep asking that very question throughout yeah. the movie, like, are you the real Alice? Is are this the real Alice? Is this, it's, it's, like, what is the connection between this thing that we're seeing and the original? Like, they kept demanding that I ask that question. I'm like, That's okay. That's really cool. I hadn't thought about that. It kind of went a bit meta to be like. It really does. Alice? Like, is this Alice in Wonderland or is this not Alice in Wonderland? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't love it, but I'm into that question. Like I'm into right. the fact that you're not distancing yourself. Like rather than trying to lull me to sleep and be like, yeah. "Look, it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee." Isn't that very Lewis Carroll? And yeah. and 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 hope you won't notice. You know the like generic fantasy plot line. You know right. uh, that I'm that I'm telling, um, or try that I'm squeezing these elements into. Instead, it kept it keeps it keeps doing it, and like she's she becomes the real Alice or like returns yeah. to the real Alice in the moment, you know, in that moment at the end before she fights the Jabberwocky. And, um, uh, anyway, it's, it's, it is, um, I really love that. And then of course, then we, we go back to the frame, right? That this is, it is again, we, we announce the fact that it is at a distance from the original by mm -hmm. the fact that Alice is 19 mm -hmm. and like going to her engagement party unbeknownst to herself, right? Uh, in the opening, mostly opening scenes um, of... Um, and the heavy leaning into all that matrimony stuff that just yeah. isn't in existence. So they're creating a tension that we haven't had before through this familiar yeah. character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the and then the sort of and then the, immediately afterwards, the questions start coming when she right when she falls down um, the voiceovers. Right. Because, of course, the, the, the one scene which is most like um, and it's not identical. They took out some stuff like the pool of tears. She cries and cries a whole pool of tears, which she almost drowns in afterwards. Like they cut that stuff and everything. You know, so it's not exactly the same, but the whole falling in key on the table, drink the potion, eat the cake, drink the potion again sequence. Um, that whole sequence with the key and the door and how you, oh, you can't like, oh, but she left the key up there when she got small. So now she can't open the door. And like, that's all straight from the book. Like that is yeah. the closest adaptation of the book that they get anywhere in that entire film. Right. And what happens throughout it? We're getting the voiceover commentary right from the dodo and from the rabbit and from the dormouse saying things like you'd think she'd remember this from last time. You think time. she'd know this, yeah. <laughs> right? So like, I was like, okay, all right, okay. So the, again, and all of those things, even the, the closeness of that with the commentary distances it, right? Remind you, mm -hmm. this is not, you're not just seeing that. She's, this is a decade later or whatever, you know, that she's going through this same thing. She should remember it, but she doesn't, right? Um, so anyway, and then the the way in which the whole thing, my favorite element, which in the end, like you think about like, what is the, what is sort of the message of the frame? 
like what is the arc of Alice's own character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the like more or less wildly anachronistic, like you as a nineteen-year-old girl need to break free from all social restraints and become your own, you know, your own independent person and you know strike off into the across the seas and become a business entrepreneur independently like mid 19th century (laughs) little unrealistic right like very strong very heavy imposition of modern sensibilities upon a previous period like the modern audience like modern audience would be like yeah right exactly you know so i was like okay you know like whatever like that's it's, it's not like that story itself kind of thrilled me because it's one i i it's not a thing I generally enjoy. That is that kind of superimposition or not, not mm. superimposition imposition, right. Mm-hmm. Of modern sensibilities upon earlier times. I always find it more fun to, um, you know, to have the experience of escape of seeing us. It's like, um, the Heath Ledger night's tale movie. Yeah. I love it. Uh-huh. Right? Which is really fun. But again, it's like, what if you had a medieval story in which everybody thought like a 20th century person, you know, um, and had right. 20th century values, um, right. including 20th century fashion sense, mostly. And, you know, anyway, like it's 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 kind of fun, but it's not my favorite kind of fun when it comes to medieval okay. movies. You know, I prefer like I, I find it more fun to have the escape of like encountering, you know, things that are alien to my world and, and being taken out of my world into somewhere else. And anyway, but, um, but that's just my taste. I love Night's Tale. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun. There's, there's, there's a lot that's fun about it. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, Hey, I can't complain about a movie in which Jeffrey Chaucer is, you know, a character. So, um, but, uh, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about with this one is, is the whole role of Alice full stop. Mm-hmm. I started wondering if she was even necessary, mm. you know, like, right. Well, okay. In so terms, in terms of her action, yeah. in terms of her purpose, not really a real reason for her to be there. It, is it just that the white queen isn't, she took an oath not to harm anybody. So she can't kill a Jabberwocky. Like that, is that, is that it? <laughs> yeah. As a, as a plot mechanic, that seemed a little bit odd. And again, they were yeah. playing with that, right? Like the yeah. um, the, uh, the overt way in which... Uh, we're acting it, too. It's yeah. like, I can't turn anything, and then she swipes and the bus. She swats the fly, then flies by. Exactly, yeah. that's what I was just going to say. Like, it's... The, 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 the undermining was very, yeah. was very amusing. Um, okay, so... But here's what I'd say about Alice's character. This really struck me... When I watched it the second time, this is one of the things that really struck me. Um is the frame made, on my second viewing, the frame kind of retroactively made all of the Wonderland action almost like allegorical. It becomes a kind of psychomachia. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You know, like the battle in the mind. You know, so... Remember, she's getting proposed to, right? So she's standing there in the gazebo with the, like, uh, horrible lordling kneeling in front of her and everybody standing Everyone out watching, watching this and the portrait, portrait guy and the, yeah. the, the band, you know. <laughs> everything's, everything's, everything's happening. And she's just like, 
excuse me a minute. And she right. runs off to chase the white rabbit and then immediately falls down the hole, leaving everybody standing there. And then, of course, they're still standing there when she comes back at the end. So she's been down there for a long time, right, of apparent time, but then returns and very little time has passed, which wasn't a shock to discover that they were going to do that sort of thing with time. Um, but they're all still standing there. Yeah. Including now, Hamish just stood up. He was kneeling, and now he was standing. And maybe he stood up before she left. But anyway, he's still. Everyone is still <clears throat> in the same position, right? Waiting for her, and she comes back. And so, the effect. When I say it was almost like an allegory, it was almost like he's proposed to her, and she needs to decide. She has this choice of self determination <clears throat> to make, right? You know. As he's yeah. standing there in front of her, this fork opens in the road of her life, and she has to decide which way to go. And so it's almost like, pause. Now let's Live dramatize her yeah. thought process, right, and her dilemma through the whole Wonderland sequence, right? And she comes to this point of self-actualization by the end of that sequence. But if she doesn't know who she is at the beginning. Yeah. And she's not hardly the real Alice, according to Absalom, right, at the at the beginning of the sequence. And by the end, she knows who she is and she has stepped into who she is. And this leads her to now come back and make a firm decision. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, it retro the frame seemed to, ret to frame, invite us yeah. to look at it that way. Right. She needs to live a life in a very small window, you know, like very much like Peter Pan going to Neverland. Like you have to have that freedom of time mm -hmm. to have the time to make those changes in your own character and those discoveries within your own being that can't happen in that split second of somebody asking to marry you. Right. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> so, um, uh, so for that, um, uh, Phil, Oh, Phil, it kind of does explain the actual butterfly. Um, because remember she, there was a blue caterpillar on Hamish's shoulder. Um, mm -hmm which she picks up and moves, right? And then she sees a blue butterfly. Um, and the blue caterpillar on his shoulder, like, it is, I don't know, it seemed to me like that blue caterpillar and therefore thereafter the blue butterfly was Absalom in the same sense that the real world characters around Dorothy are the cowardly lion and the, you know, like it was, um, I, I mean, I, I felt invited to see that as a kind of projection. Um, Though it's interesting, again, right, the whole question, one of the whole central dramas of the entire Wonderland sequence is, is this real or is it a dream, right? Is this, is it, you know, does the Mad Hatter actually exist or is he a figment of her imagination? Um, is it a dream or a memory, right? And yeah. when she comes to her moment of self-actualization is linked to her realization that it was a memory, right? Yeah. And then, yes, those those flashback moments, right? The flashback moments of her as a child, Alice, right? The things that the recurring dream that she's been having with the thing she realizes was not a dream, but a memory. Right. When we see the flashback to that, that's the only time we're getting the actual book being, yeah. you know, not retold. Um, but we get the little incidents. We see young Alice at the tea party. We see young Alice meeting you know, the caterpillar we see, um, you know, all, her painting the flowers, uh, painting mm -hmm. the roses and all of that stuff. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so so, yeah, so that she is 
in her later life, like when she sees the butterfly on the ship afterwards, connecting it back to the character of Absalom is, but again, I'm not sure, but there's a, there's a complicated thing that they're doing there, right? Because as, as I said, like the frame almost invites us to see it as a kind of an allegory, like a, a kind of playing out of her own <laughs> mental process of decision making at that moment. And yet within that process, the whole force of the narrative is that it's not a dream. It's real. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a real tension there, which you also like drink the Kool-Aid and the time slip is acceptable. Right. Like it, it does invite you to just kind of lift that questioning element and say, okay, in this world, this is what makes sense. So I don't have to worry about real and fake. There is some tie, but it's not my concern right now. This story can happen the way that it's happening without affecting what I know about within this frame. Mm -hmm. Takes yeah. a minute to get, but... Yeah, I mean, I, it's probably one of my own least favorite elements of the film is that I mm -hmm. think I found the ending, not just because, as I say, I tend to be a little bit resistant to modern perspectives imposed on the past but um but because i found the ending a little dissatisfying dissatisfying because because the trajectory of the wonderland story was towards reality right <clears throat> and um, not that I necessarily wanted her to return permanently to Wonderland and marry the Mad Hatter, you know, like that's not what I was exactly pining for. But at yeah. the same time, I wasn't really the way in which the way in which her acceptance of the reality of Wonderland and her kind of in, the three things right of like, I accept that this is real. And a memory and not a dream. And I know who I am, right? I am Alice Kingsley. Um, not only am I the real Alice, but the real Alice who is like my father's daughter, right? Um, and I'm going to go off and like live my father's life, like be the heir essentially of my father, right? Um, those three things didn't all kind of meld for me mm. because I felt I was like the, the way that she leaves Wonderland. I'm like, what it's... It's disappointing. Do you remember um, yeah. uh, the contrast I couldn't help but make was to the end of uh, Labyrinth, the movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, that like, if you need us, we'll be here. Right. The, yeah. the kind of the 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 frame of the Labyrinth film also <clears throat> insists that like the real there, there's like the real world. And there's the departure, mm -hmm. the imaginative departure from the real world and the uncertainty, right? Like, you know, is her kid brother in Labyrinth really in danger and whatever, you know, or is this all just a fantasy on her part? Does her imagination have real consequences in the real world? The never-ending story film also plays yep. with the link between yep. the fantasy world and the real world in a similar kind of way, right? And in both cases you have both of those films, Labyrinth and The NeverEnding Story, and with the fantasy world having informed and changed the real world in some some concrete sure. ways. 
there's a similar shape here, right? Yeah. This seemed to be, we seem to be doing a similar kind of story, but I found that link less satisfying. Like the way in which she just kind of turns back on and the seeing of the butterfly, like I mean, she's yeah. just like, Oh, Hey, Absalom, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. So she has kind of incorporated that into her life and outlook to some extent, but I'm like, anyway, I just, it, yeah, it didn't, and I don't have, didn't I work don't for me in the same way. I don't know if I have the, the depth of analysis for it yet, but I, I mean, the, the phrase I kept telling myself was, I'm just bored now. It didn't feel like it had the same payoff, and maybe mm -hmm. that's what it is. The real yeah. world frame within the fantasy parallel, where watching you in a mentory type way, didn't really pay off the way that those others do. Because mm -hmm. by the time she actually like puts on the armor and raises her sword, like, you know where this is going. Right. I, you know, you just you kind of mentally check out. It's not the big climax that you want it to be. That happened a while ago, I think, when she starts to discover who she is and what she can do. The actual battle and everything that kind of comes after it yeah. fell a little for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it was um, it was a little bit pointless. The battle sequence. I mean, other than like doing a cool CGI dragon and. But I was also like, poor Jabberwocky. Like, what did he do? Like, he's yeah. just been held in reserve to have a fight and then got his head cut off by this chick. Like. Am right. I supposed to have sympathy for the Jabberwocky? Because I did. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't. I don't know if I had sympathy for the Jabberwocky exactly, but it's anyway. It was. But but it's. I think of the way in which they constantly depicted the battle. Of you know where yeah. you had like the chess pieces on the one side and the cards on the other side, which is a kind of a fun. Again, like mm -hmm. chess is a. Uh, an organizing conceit of through the looking glass and the cards are a recurring joke in, in Alice in Wonderland. So it's like the two different books kind of coming together right. and that was fun. But, um, but like throughout the battle sequence, you just see in the background, like the whole field covered with cards and chess pieces matched up fighting pointlessly hand to hand with nobody accomplishing anything. Right. It's like, yeah. everyone's just kind of standing around fighting there's no like there's no sense that an actual battle is happening right it's just right. like the field full of fighting characters and anyway as you say like it's the whole thing felt kind of pointless and of course again that's something um if it's a if that's a failure in that moment in the story it's like one that they anticipated because of course we saw Alice slaying the Jabberwocky on the oraculum from the beginning. So right. that sense of the predestination, you know, the inevitable predestination of the story. We know what was an element of the story. Yeah. It's like revealing your monster. Like we know what we're supposed to see. But so by the time we see it, I suppose it could be seen as satisfying because she's fulfilling that, but there's no tension to it. It's like, yep, there she is. And of course, <clears throat> this also leads into my disappointment, I think with the ending. Because, of course, you can see how, and I'm, I like this kind of play, right, between the frame narrative, the frame story and the regular story. And so the way, you know, the, the kind of the relevance that the inner story has to the outer story and everything. And especially, again, on a second viewing, it's very, very clear, right? Um, mm -hmm. Within <coughs> Wonderland, there, there's a question as to whether she is the right Alice, but... Um, but that Alice is going to slay the Jabberwocky on the Frabjous Day is literally written on the, you know, 
like it's set in it's not set in stone it's set on the parchment but anyway it's set from the start right. like there's there's this plot that she is railroaded into um and this sequence that she like has to follow um and she doesn't seem to have much choice about that which ironically leads her to self-actualization right um yeah. but of course when you go back to the frame like when you go back and you watch it a second time, all of that whole opening sequence of how she's trying to be forced to comply with the societal rules that she doesn't agree with, like corsets and um, and the expectations of her marriage and her being like her sister and, uh, uh, you know, and all of these other things. Right. Like, are you going to fill the role that everybody expects you to fulfill? is right. exactly what is at stake. It's exactly what's being asked, yeah. And then she goes to Wonderland, and it's like, are you going to fulfill the role that everybody says, expects you to fulfill as Alice? Are you Alice or aren't you? Are you Alice yeah. or aren't you Alice, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. to be Alice means to do just what everybody wants to do and to fulfill everybody's expectations. Um, yeah. And that's what she grows into. So the fact that she does this, and then immediately, like, having been like, yes, I know who I am. I am the, the right Alice, Right, I am the I am the one who is going to choose to take up the vorpal sword and, and I am the chosen one. I am yeah. the chosen one, right? Exactly. And then you go back immediately from there to the uh, to the frame, right? Back to the gazebo where Hamish is still waiting for you, right? And say like, okay, now I see everything clearly, right? And my answer is, I'm not going to do anything that anybody expects yeah. of me. I'm going to tear myself entirely free because I actualized myself by conforming to all of the expectations. But like it was like it didn't feel like <clears throat> it didn't feel like the direction that she went and the way that she went there in the closing part of the frame. It didn't feel to me payoff. I, I think it's back to payoff. I didn't feel like it yeah. paid off the other story fully. Yeah. Um, I mere defiance of expectation. Like, I know you want me to do this and everyone expects me to do this, but I won't. I'm going to do something different from what everybody expects. Um, Is not where I felt like the story had prompted me to be ready. No, and especially when I didn't, and especially when I didn't see any of those foundations laid during her change. Mm -hmm. So where she ends up is not what we watched happen. Right. Like, maybe there's a few soft skills in there that she learned about like standing up for yourself or working alongside difficult people or something like that. But right. it, there, there wasn't when she, it was a business person at the end, like, but you are a dragon slayer. I don't, hmm. you know, it, it wasn't quite the same yeah, yeah, payoff as no. watching somebody train to become a, a black belt, whatever. And then seeing them succeed in that field. Like, yes, yes, exactly. And that was training also montage did not pay off for this world championship. This yes. is my brain. Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's and I think also the sense in which which felt I felt the expectations much more strongly the second time around. But even the first time around, I was feeling like there ought to be a quasi allegorical connection between the action of Wonderland and the real world action mm-hmm. at the end. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There not should a, be a not big... necessarily a one for one kind of Wizard of Oz sort of correlation no. but 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 yeah it's but so i found myself saying like okay so like what was the jabberwocky you know that yeah, she slew so metaphorically in even her... if it was just like a big thunderstorm or, or something, something. Like, yeah like, like, it, like there was no, yeah. anyway it was weird like the, it didn't feel like it corresponded in the yeah. way that it that it seemed to expect like you know yeah. that 
the framing the having the entire Wonderland episode as being something that happened with a literal hitting pause in the midst of the engagement ceremony and then coming back and finishing it in the in the radical way that she does. Again, it just it, they didn't correspond in ways that felt like it was really paying off. Um, yeah. So that was that. I, I felt that that was that was definitely a little bit, a little bit awkward. But I, I it was it was awkward in the sense that I was disappointed because I liked the setup. Like I, I was yeah. interested in that. Um, I thought that imposing that kind of mechanism, taking the um, the kind of labyrinth slash never ending story kind of plot line and imposing that on Alice in Wonderland was a really interesting concept that I, yeah. that I kind of liked. Right. Um, well, it's a frame that we like, you know, like that's a good story to tell, but there are certain payoff probably is the best word. I don't want to just keep harping on it, but it, it is like, things that need to be realized and if you take the frame as being enough to satisfy then you're missing a point you know mm-hmm. the frame is a vehicle where a lot of things can land but if you don't know what the tick boxes for landing could be then you're missing some cool opportunities yeah 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 no i mean that's um yeah that's true and yeah Phil, I do agree. I mean, it's not like I wanted her to marry Hamish or something like that. Right. That was I mean, it was all it was clear. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't need anything but the opening sequence to see that she was being entrapped in a life that would make her very unhappy. Um, but that's the point is that I didn't need the whole Wonderland sequence in order to come to that conclusion. You know, yeah. Alice seems to have needed it in some way, kind of, though, again, I don't see exactly how it how it led from here to there yeah. precisely. Um, but yeah, it just, it didn't feel like it, it didn't feel like it corresponded. But again, the concept, I liked the concept. Um, you know, the idea of we're going to take the Alice in Wonderland thing and we're going to, we're going to put it within an adult frame and not just an adult frame. The moment at which it pauses is not just an important dramatic moment. It, it is literally like the moment of transition from childhood to adulthood. Right? Yeah, and life-defining. That life-defining moment. Like, that's the moment. One way or another, Alice is becoming a grown-up at that yeah. moment. She's going to cease to be a child. She's treated like a child by her mother and everything. Yeah. You know, everyone's treating her like a child at the beginning. Um, but now she's going to grow up. She's either going to get married... And she's going to be a grown-up wife of a lord, or and and instead she goes off and like starts her own independent career, right? Or yeah. like whatever. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Finish. Finish. I I quite like the playing the game of like the what if though, and mm-hmm. you know just saying that and what what I was saying before about the payoff not really we didn't see the skills to have the end pay off. What if that opening sequence? she was excited to be proposed to. She was that, that woman who was looking for a well-matched marriage and he was a man of means and it would make her mother happy and she was going into it. Like if and this were then, a Jane Austen frame instead of a... Right. <laughs> yes. And then, exactly, like if you started with a Jane Austen frame and then you ended with her saying, actually, he was now, I really want to run my own company. Like that would have been quite a different switch. Yes. yes. Exactly. Like the, our expectation from the beginning was that she shouldn't be with Hamish. So... Why is there a big realization at the end that doesn't land? That's why. Right. So, right. Oh, 
I wish I was in that scripture. Why didn't somebody say, hey, start it this way and we'd have a bigger payoff? Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. If um, it's true, actually, if she had been into Hamish at the beginning, it would have hit much differently at the end. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And still, maybe we could have seen her having some self-doubt about this. But if her inclination was to say yes, and she was excited to go, even if just to please her mother or something. Right. And then we see the strength to say no come from her time in Wonderland. Right. That right. would not to sense. mention the fact that like another thing, which for me undermined the self-actualization of the end of the frame is that I was like, Oh, okay. So you decided that instead of trying to make your mother happy, you would instead dedicate your life to trying to make your dead father happy. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. That's much more independent. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I have none of that either. <laughs> that, yep. that was an element that was also kind of undermining it for me a little bit. Um, yeah. But um, who are you, Alice? Who are you? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And oh. it's fine. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not against the like she's her father's daughter, and like, and yeah. that they were setting up from the very, very opening scene um, on and stuff. But um, uh, by the way, I really like the actor who played her father um uh can you remember who that is i don't remember his name but yeah. he plays one of the leads in um oh what's the name of the amc series into the borderlands it's a oh, okay uh it's a i i am i i really enjoy that series and he plays this like really creepy duke figure who has this but he has this like remarkable um, like accent and intonation. He's like, yeah. uh, anyway, it's just, it's really over the top, but sort of deliciously over the top. Anyway, I, um, um, I really, I really enjoy him uh, in general. Yeah. So, and I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't place him the first time I, I saw it. He was like familiar, but I couldn't figure out who he was. And the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, I know just who okay. that is. Um, Yes. You know, I did the same with Crispin Glover. It took me about halfway through the film to be like, that's Crispin Glover. <laughs> yeah, so tying in our fantasy folks, why not? Yeah, yeah. Uh so anyway, no, I'm I'm excited. But anyway, anyway, it was um so in the end, so like let's come back to conclusions here. Like as far as adaptation, like what this what is the status of this film in the end as an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland? You know, like what is the sort of, not that we have to give it a final grade or something like that, but kind of coming back to the basic thing. Um, you know, I, in the end, I think that as an adaptation, I quite liked it. I quite liked it because it would have been one thing. The risk of telling a story, which, um, to use the terms I was using before is a completely different story doing completely different things, but just wearing the skin of the Lewis Carroll story. Usually I find that goes very, very badly, right? Because it's, it ends up, even when it succeeds as a story like how to train your dragon, which the movie is a fun story. And I like 
the movie story. But the skin of the How to Change Your How to Train Your Dragon book is frustrating to me because I love that book, which is hilarious and does wonderful things, none of which the film makes any attempt to do. And so I feel like um, I feel like there was actually How to Train Your Dragon is one of the adaptations that I would come closest to using the word ruin about just because they took that, used it only as a skin. But now, like, you, if you anyone tries to do justice to the How to Train Your Dragon book, which is wonderful, it's going to be... It, people it'll are gonna be held... Feel, like, yeah. Like it's, yeah, it'll be held in comparison to this thing that now defines... What that now re, has redefined it. And so you, yeah. you, you couldn't do justice to How to Train Your Dragon anymore. Especially since it was so successful, it's become a whole thing. They're doing... I just heard in Orlando yesterday, day before yesterday, that they're planning a new like how to train your dragon theme park okay. section I mean, of the new successful. universal anyway yeah. whatever point is it's really successful right how to train your dragon the film um and so therefore has in a sense kind of buried the book which is not being is again it's just wearing the skin of the book and so anyway that's it's hard i um i i don't um but the difference here, right? I thought that this was, although there was a certain amount of skin wearing that was going on in this film, I thought that it was interesting. I thought it succeeded because it succeeds in actually evoking the Alice stuff and mm-hmm. sort of using that, the way that it that it ref, reflected back on it, right? The whole... The way in which it was so self-conscious about its relationship to the original story and the way that it brought the original story and what it was never claiming to be the story. Um, again, like the How to Train Your Dragon film, you would have, if you hadn't read the book, you would have no idea that the book was not that story, right? But watching this film, if you, even if you hadn't read the books, you would still know that there was a different and original Alice in Wonderland story and that this story was designed to kind of be after you know it's a you know this sort of sequel thing right 10 years later or whatever right so um so in that way it it avoids simply wearing the skin you know of the original and um and the way in which you've got both the complex relationship between this new story that it's telling and the old you know the book that lies beneath it with also the way it's doing the 19th century 19 year old woman mm-hmm. frame with the Wonderland thing like and the way that those all kind of interacted with each other even though I didn't feel like it really worked like it 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 could have been amazing if it had all come together better I didn't feel like it came together really successfully yeah. but I love I kind of love what it attempted I thought it's it's really interesting Kind of the same. Like, I, it's not my favorite movie. I, if, if I was still buying DVDs, it's not one I feel like I would need to pick up. But it's, I like salute it for what it tried to do. And mm-hmm. I think it did a good job of what yeah. it tried to do. Yeah. And, you know, going into the land of Alice in Wonderland and that rich tapestry of, of resource that you can pull from and being able to kind of weave together two books and a lot of ancillary stuff that just kind of works and putting it together within this frame 
that's no small task. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then to have all the technical side of things too, and right. you know, ninety percent of a green screen and using all this this technology they hadn't used before, they managed to really show a world and tell a story. That there's a few points that you know I would have given notes on had they consulted me. I mean, really, uh, <laughs> the, the, you kind of think if there were a few more drafts and a few more voices at the table, maybe some of these things would have been caught and it really would have landed. But they made over a billion dollars. It did just fine. They did fine, yeah, yeah. Hard and to call it a failure. Note, I, on that note, I did look up what the other films of that year were because it said it was the second highest grossing, and I was just curious. Listen to what came out that year. So number one was Toy Story. 1.06 billion. Alice in Wonderland was two. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, 972. Inception, 828. Shrek, 752. Twilight Saga Eclipse, 698. Iron Man 2, 623. Tangled, 592. Despicable Me, 543. And How to Train Your Dragon, 494. Those I mean, all came out the same year. year as this one? All came out the same year. And this one blew them all, blew all of those out of the water. Only Toy and the other Story. Thing, and the other thing I love, okay, number 12 is King's Speech, which was one, one of my favorite yeah. films ever. Yeah. It had a tiny budget, and it made $423 million. It's just one of those that you're like, good job. That was a really good um, film, yeah. And number 13 is Voyage of Don Treader. <laughs> this was a big year. It was a big year. <laughs> Tron Legacy, Karate Kid, Robin Hood, Last Airbender. Oh, my God. Wow. 2010, man. Wow. Yeah. So for it to have that kind of grasp on the audience in 2010, this is also like the heyday of social media starting to take off. Like mm -hmm. 2010 is where they really got into a groove of like capturing in on fan engagement and really milking the marketing techniques before it was saturated. So I don't know what they were for Alice in Wonderland, but I bet they were pretty good. Right, uh, right. That'd be fun to see that too. Wow. Anyway. That is, that is. Mad fascinating i never would have guessed that yeah. um yeah i mean just like the concept like i would never have guessed that this film outgrossed shrek in the year yeah. of shrek like shrek was and so harry, big and harry potter and harry potter that was one like <laughs> yeah 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 wow easy yeah unbelievable anyway so on that Crazy. speechless note yeah. This was a fun one to look at, though. I feel like we should do a few more of these now and again of just like adaptation studies. And yeah. No, this, this as a case study really suggested itself because it was, I, I mean, I, the point. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I continue to drive like our point home of just like we're not talking about do we like it or not. We're talking about analysis, but here's why this part didn't land for us and here's why this part could have. And it's just a really nice way to talk through some of the processes of mm -hmm. something that people are really familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I need to watch the other two, though, which I feel like this much talk about it and this much praise for we're talking about the process of adaptation. I don't really feel like I want to watch the others. So there are two. Yeah. I knew there was I, I knew there was one through the looking glass. They find they did one that they called through the looking glass, I think. Right. Um, yeah. I and I only one. know that because I was watching the film on Disney Plus and it recommended the next one <laughs> when I finished. <laughs> so it's the only I wouldn't have known it existed if it weren't yeah. for that. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, I I, um, I want to we don't have any time. Um, but I want to acknowledge Scott's question on Twitch. You saying, you know, what is really required to do justice to the source? Is there a bare criteria? Um, and that's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's big. Um, 
this is what I found. So this is why the number one reason I wanted to talk about this as an example is that um, we've talked before, like we were talking in when we were doing the Christmas Carol, you know, last year we were talking about uh, and using that Tolkien phrase, the core of the original, right? Like, um, is there what is there an element from this story, which if you don't capture that element, if that element is not you know, at the heart of your story, you're really, you've, you've just whiffed on the original. Um, and the thing is, I don't think anyone could say, I don't think anyone would say that this does that with the original, that this captures the core. Mm. But then again, Alice is, it's really hard to find Mm. what is the core of the original in the same way. Um, and what's everybody's original. So, you're always going to be dealing with different people's level of engagement as well. So, you know, is the original, the animated Disney film, or is it the Lewis Carroll text? And how do you kind of manage the expectations between those two things and still manage to tell your own story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was, this one is, um, and again, because, especially because it wasn't a retelling. Right. Um, and that also, I do, I do think, creates some different sorts of standards. But then again, I come back and I think about like Tolkien adaptations, some of which I do feel very strongly don't do justice to the original, that there is a core, which if they don't, you know, if they don't capture the core, they're, 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 they've really wandered off. Um, Like the shadows and Mordor game. But um, as the example that I always come back to is the adaptation that I think is furthest afield uh, from Tolkien's world. But anyway, it is a big topic, but it's it's something that we can kind of keep that in mind as we move forward. Yeah. On the subject of which, we should talk about moving forward and let Maggie actually get some sleep finally. Um, and my child is crying, so... Oh, we'll yeah, okay. That. Anyway, so we will finish up, and we'll finish up by saying, first of all, two things. One, um, I, I won't be available next week, so we, we, we won't be meeting next week. No broadcast for me next week. I'll be away from home. Um... Uh, family trip, but I will will be back the week after. So um, two weeks from today, we will be back. And when we are back two weeks from today, starting at our new time of 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, we will um, be uh, we'll be talking about Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh! Winnie the Pooh. So we're going to be looking at the book, of course, and we're going to be looking at we're going to do openings again. So we're going to do another openings uh, uh, session where we're going to be looking at Winnie the Pooh and we're going to be looking at the, of course, the, the, the classic Disney animation. Um, and we're going to be looking at the recent, uh, live action action. version. Um, uh, that was just, what was it? I'm blanking on the name. Did they, Oh, I remember. What was it like? I'm being called. Yeah, I'm going to go. Anyway, we should go. Thank you very <laughs> much, right. Maggie. Have a good night. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, you everybody. Too, See you guys in Bye. two weeks.